Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Van Maren Show. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today we're going to be talking to Andrew Claven of The Daily Wire. Many of you will know him as a cultural commentator. He's written all sorts of novels. He's written a memoir about his conversion to Christianity, and his most recent book is in a different book entirely. It's called The Truth and Beauty, How the Lives and Works of England's Greatest Poets Point the Way to a Deeper Understanding of the Words of Jesus. And this is a really eclectic book in many ways. He has this fascinating analysis of Mary Shelley, the author of Frankenstein. He talks about uh, how different artists engaged with Christianity. Some of them, like William Wordsworth, were Christian. Others, like John Keats, were not Christian. But how many of these artists and these authors really did see in the natural world a representation of, of the divine artwork. Now, one of the reasons this book is particularly interesting uh, is because it's part of a broader discussion on how uh, Christians can consume art and literature. There's a great book called On Reading Well uh, by Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor, who's a literature professor that covers the same subject. Uh, Dr. Russell Moore, formerly of the Southern Baptist uh, Convention, has done a lot of writing uh, on, on how Christians should interact with literature, what types of literature are acceptable for Christians to consume. And the same thing applies, of course, to film, which is a far more controversial topic because most of what uh, Christ, explicitly Christian companies put out as Christian films um, are schlocky, cliched, bad quality, and of course I would think also incredibly bad theology. But there's been, in the realm of documentary, some really beautiful things put out um, by Christians. There's the Red Sea controversy, uh, sorry, the Red Sea miracle, the Moses um, controversy, a series of BBC-style and BBC quality uh, documentaries on the Exodus. There's also uh, the Riot and the Dance, uh, two, a two-part uh, documentary series thus far on understanding nature and wildlife from a Christian perspective. Those are incredibly beautiful. But of course, we have an enormous canon in Western civilization of art and literature that was produced by Christians. And even when these works were not explicitly and overtly Christian, as so many American evangelicals want things to be today, uh, they were implicitly Christian because they were produced by Western civilization, which was based on on a Judeo-Christian foundation. And so this is a really interesting and eclectic book. Um, I, I, I found myself hoping as I read it that Clavin would actually turn his hand to literary biography because some of the most fascinating and interesting bits are his descriptions of meetings between Wordsworth and Coleridge and Keats and all these other great poems, uh, poets that you probably were forced to read in high school, but are well worth your time and attention now. So without further introduction from me, here's my conversation with Andrew Clavin, uh, author, commentator with The Daily Wire, and um, the man who just wrote this beautiful new book called The Truth and Beauty. So the difficulty what I had uh, writing a review of this book is you cover so much territory, and there's so many sort of topics that seem disparate that you pull together. And I guess just to start off, could you kind of introduce the listeners to the conceit behind the book? Because it, it, it purports to be just about the work, the lives and works of England's greatest poets pointing, pointing towards Jesus, but it's actually a lot more than that, especially when you start to get into Mary Shelley, who I'd like to talk uh, about with you in a bit. It kind of grew up organically. It would have to. It's such an oddball idea on the face of it. But I started out by 
finding that I was puzzled by some of the things that are in the Gospels. And, you know, we take them for granted because we almost, you know, they're just part of our language almost. Uh, Love your enemies and, you know, uh, forgive as you would be forgiven. And I just found that when I thought about them, I thought some of these things are not things I would actually do. And I'm not sure that I should do them, except for the fact that they're in the Gospels. And every time I find myself understanding the Gospels, I get happier. I get my life becomes better and more joyful. So I wanted to understand them. And I was talking to my son about it. And he said, you know, the problem is you're trying to understand a philosophy instead of trying to get to know a person, which struck me as, as a brilliant thing to say, because when you know people, you know, I know my wife very well. I don't think, oh, this is her philosophy of life. What I think of is if she were here, this is how she'd react or she'd love this or she'd hate it. So I thought, well, I'm going to do this experiment. And that is I'm going to reread the Gospels, but I'm going to set aside all theology. Catholic theology, Protestant theology, doesn't matter, Paul's theology, all of it. And I'm just going to react to Jesus as a person. I'm going to react to him as if he were a character in a novel uh, or, uh, you know, the subject of a biography or an autobiography. And in doing that, I found that I would try to understand who he was. And the words of these poets, these romantic poets kept coming back to me, which was puzzling to me. I love the romantic poets, but I didn't see any particular reason on the surface why they should be explaining Jesus to me, but they were. They were making it easier for me to understand what he was saying, to to know him and what he was seeing, I think would be a better way of, of saying it. And when I thought about it, I realized that the romantics lived in a period that is so much like our period that it's almost uncanny. Uh, the radical politics that grew out of the French Revolution and out of the failure of the French Revolution created this kind of sense that all of reality had to be erased and rewritten, uh, that maybe there was no God, that maybe the, uh, women and men were a false dichotomy, that maybe uh, science had it was the only way forward, and maybe there was no such thing as truth. And when I thought about that, I thought, gee, it's, it's so much like what's happening today and so much like the, the radical versus conservative uh, quandary we're in at the moment, that it must be related in the same way to the failure of faith, the growth of unbelief that I think sort of springs out of not just science, but out of the materialist ethic uh, that comes with science, the ethos that this is all knowledge, all knowledge is knowledge of matter. Um, and when I thought about that, and I thought about the lives of these poets, I realized that they had been struggling. These are the questions they'd been struggling to answer, just like we're struggling to answer them now. And the reason they're struggling to answer them, just like we're struggling to answer them, is because they had lost touch with what Jesus was saying. And that brought me back to a view of Jesus kind of refreshed through these through this poetry that showed me that he was trying to show us the way the truth is not written down on tablets of stone. It is not absolutely the same in every moment, but it is something that human beings are created to be able to find uh, through work and through faith and through uh, life, basically, and, uh, and understanding. And when I read his words that way, they were transformed for me. Uh, they made perfect sense. And even things that put me off a little bit, suddenly I realized, no, no, I see what he's trying to tell me. And so it was just very refreshing, and has, it has revolutionized the way I see not just the Gospels, but my own life. And one of the things I'm kind of hoping to pass on is a little bit of that revolution. Yeah, what's so interesting when you get to the conclusion of your book is how totalizing the truth with a capital T really is. And, and one of the things I found 
uh, particularly interesting is is this quote that you have where you say modernity has disenchanted the human territory the earth has ceased to appear a place of angels and demons miracles and magic with a heaven painted on the sky above and a hell in the hidden pits and the mountains underground and that quote is almost identical to a similar one um, by arthur cannon doyle who kind of talks about how the heavens have gotten higher up and hell has gotten further below and and we're a degree removed from from, from god's participation in anything and the whole idea of re-enchantment is very interesting to me because it seems to me that what you've done in this book is you've actually grasped what folks like Dr. Jordan Peterson are groping towards. Do you have that same sense? Whenever you write, you have an audience in your mind. And while it wasn't Jordan specifically, it was all those uh, intellectuals who are waking up to the fact that nothing that we believe is true has any basis to stand on if you remove Christianity. And yet, even though they see it, and I'm thinking of guys like Douglas Murray and uh, Marcello Perra in Italy, the, the fellow who wrote Tom Holland, who wrote Dominion, who's kind of wrestling with the fact that everything he believes in comes from Christianity, is shaped by Christianity. But they keep saying the same thing. You know, I myself can't believe, but clearly we must act as if it were true. Um, and I thought, no, you know, that's not going to work. You can't behave as if something's true when you don't believe that it's true. And so one of the audiences uh, I had in mind were these uh, intellects who who are stuck at that at that point. And young, a lot of young people who I meet who have just grown up in this kind of fog of skepticism, uh, of uh, a fog of unbelief, let's call it, in which they immediately say, oh, anyone who thinks there's one true religion is being a fool. Anyone who thinks there's absolute truth is being a fool. They, they haven't thought that through. It's just something that's been delivered into their hands. And so this was the problem these great poets were thinking about and trying to deal with. And I picked out those poets who I thought had dealt with it and had and led us back to Jesus and what he was saying and why he was saying, I am the way and the truth and the, and the life, why he was saying, I speak the truth and those who know the truth, hear my voice. And, and why when Pontius Pilate said, you know, what is truth? Only one of those ways of thinking could survive. Both Jesus and Socrates, on whom our, our civilization stand, they're like two pillars on whom our civilization stand, they were both dealing with people uh, who believed there was no truth. Uh, Jesus with guys like Pontius Pilate and Socrates with the sophists. And both realized that there was such a thing as objective truth, but they realized it was something that was very difficult to find and something that you found through method as much as through declaration. And so that's what makes all this so so interesting to me, that it doesn't just give you a bunch of rules to live by. Uh, it gives you a way of seeing the world so that you can find your way to the truth. Your book combines a couple, like a really fascinating angle for a bunch of things that are happening at the same time. So when you mentioned Tom Holland and Douglas Murray, uh, I wrote a piece for, for National Review and another for First Things looking at the King Agrippa Christians, those who say almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian, right? You have Roger Scruton would be in that category. I interviewed Neil Ferguson for, for the American Conservative. He says he thinks people should go to church and, you know, and, and try to believe, even though he himself doesn't. Ian Hersia Lee now also uh, uh, talks about Christianity as, as sort of fundamentally important. And then I did a recent interview with, uh, with, with Paul Kingsnorth, the brilliant British writer. And, and he said he's recently become orthodox uh, after having been a radical environmentalist. And he said, you know, what is the point of not believing it? If, if, if everything it says to us about our society and our culture is true, 
um, you have to believe it. It's pr- almost precisely what you said, which at the very end of your book, where you said it's not going to be enough to just to say we need to keep this around, sort of, you know, like Alan Bloom refers to the the sacred as the toothless circus lion that you keep around to feel the thrill of the jungle without fully committing yourself to going into the jungle. One question I really wanted to ask you about the point you make in the book that might be controversial to a lot of, of Christians in general, which is that the romantics can in fact help point um, a point point towards Christianity. And I did not know and was surprised to read that C.S. Lewis credited Wordsworth for making him open to it. And then I remember that Peter Hitchens said about his brother Christopher that if he ever came to Christianity, it would be by some sudden force of art or poetry, and it would not, in fact, be, you know, argument, dogmatics, apologetics, which would do it for him. Kind of ex- explain for our listeners why you believe the Romantics can point can point the way to Christianity. It's not just C.S. Lewis, you know, one of the inklings and, and probably the most brilliant intellectually of the Inklings was Owen Barfield, uh, whose spirit informs this book very deeply and who is one of the best interpreters of uh, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, who in turn is the genius, the one of these poets who understood from the beginning that Jesus was at the center of their problems and, and was one of the most brilliant men who ever lived. At that moment, he was probably the most brilliant man alive. So the romantics very much informed the Inklings and very much informed Lewis's thought. And the reason is simple, because they understood that when you cut yourself off from God, you have contained yourself inside a prison of your own mind. Your spirit is now speaking to nothing and to no one, and everything is relative to you, and therefore everything is relative. You find yourself in the position that we're in now, where the inner life, what is sometimes called the subjective life, has two absolutely contradictory roles in our life. One is that it means nothing. Somebody says to you, oh, that's just a subjective opinion. You just think that's beautiful. You just think that's true. But somewhere in Saudi Arabia, they think uh, the exact opposite is true. And how are you to know without being a bigot, uh, which of you is right and which of you is wrong? So the subjective life is completely unreliable. Even your gender is false. Even your sense that you're living in a free country is better than living as a slave could be questioned. All of these things are up for grabs. On the other hand, and this is not as strange as it may seem at first, your inner life is completely sovereign. So that if in the middle of this conversation, I were to say to you, you know, you know, like, uh, like that country singer, I said, man, I feel like a woman, you would suddenly have to respect the fact that I have instantaneously transformed myself into a woman. And if you said I did not, you would be uh, the hateful one for doubting my inner and therefore sovereign experience. And what these Poets were saying, and what they what they understood, and many of them understood it through talking to Coleridge, was that we're actually in a collaboration. We are uh, working together with creation to continue to create. We are the part of creation that continues to create, and that all of our creation has to be attached to the great creation. And Jesus, the way Jesus said this is he said, you are a branch of my vine, and if the branch falls off, it doesn't bear fruit, but if the branch is connected to the vine, then it does bear fruit. The way these poets translated that uh, without knowing it a lot of times, was that we are in, are in collaboration with the one great mind, as Wordsworth uh, called it. Uh, Coleridge said, we are the miniature creation in the midst of the great creation. Uh, and so that understanding revives the importance of your inner life and the importance of your subjective world, but it means that your subjective world can be right or it can be wrong. It can be beautiful or it can be ugly. It needs to be in collaboration with the creation that made it. Uh, And that is a a re- 
inventing of what Christians knew without quite putting it in that way, because they didn't have the language uh, of psychology before the Enlightenment, during the Middle Ages. They didn't have that psychological language. And that's what they were, these romantics were trying to do. They were trying to reinvent the truth and beauty, including human psychology, which I think was an important leap forward. I kind of came to, to, to age in university during the New Atheist period. And what strikes me is that what when Christopher Hitchens did debates, he would he would so often say things like, "I'm an anti-theist." Like, not only uh, does, do I believe God doesn't exist, I'm glad that He doesn't exist. And now you have the people that that you just mentioned and you mentioned in your book who are saying, "I don't think He exists, but I wish He does exist." Have you seen a kind of a shift in the discussion uh, surrounding God over the last ten years? There's no question about it. I mean, the guys who are called the four horsemen of the apocalypse, uh, you know, Hitchens was one of them. And then there were the, the others who basically declared that atheism was the new religion and science had disproved that were actually kind of undermined by the attacks on 9-11, which declared that religion was still a force in the world and that a kind of uh, bland, materialist, scientific worldview was not going to be enough to answer it. And the thing is, That would be it would be one thing to say we need religion because it's useful. That's not a very powerful argument, because if it's useful, but it isn't true, then we must avoid it. We have to reject it if it's useful, but untrue. We have to find other ways to serve its its purposes. But if nothing that we believe is true without it, that's a hint that it is true. And and therefore, we have to try to find our way back. And that voice has been kind of moving up through the ranks as, as we, you know, all the people we talked about, Murray, Jordan Peterson, uh, Marcello Perra, all, all these people are starting to say, you know, I can't build this Jenga tower without that bottom block. You know, in order for me to build this tower of things I know to be the case, that freedom is better than slavery, that women have rights, that women are equal persons to men, all of those things can't stand if they're not standing on the shoulders of Jesus Christ. And so now you've got a problem where the scientific worldview has created an atmosphere in which you think you can't believe, but you must believe. And that contradiction has to be worked out. And I believe it's starting to be worked out now. Because remember, this is the important part, is that remember, science creates the illusion that you can't believe. But but it is an illusion. All, all science is, is a way of understanding the material world, which is absolutely wonderful. But the material world is not all there is. And we know that. We know that for a fact because we fall in love, because numbers work. Numbers uh, have no material value. They, you know, they, they don't exist. Numbers are just things that are in our mind. And yet you can build a rocket to the stars using numbers. Uh, so we know that the things that simply exist in our mind have a basis in reality, uh, and we have to try to find our way back to that base. And as Coleridge pointed out, Jesus is the model for bringing together spirit and flesh, God and man. He is the model for how we can do that and how we can feel our way and live our way into that truth. And it's interesting because during the, the period where the new atheists uh, who needed to borrow a metaphor from scripture to get their point across by calling themselves the four horsemen, when they were kind of making the case that, you know, science disproved God, you saw, you know, the rise of, of, of apologists like William Lane Craig, etc., who also very much made the case for for an intelligent design. Um, and, and things like numbers prove that there was a designer, whereas your book almost makes the point that by looking at the uh, the artwork, we can discern the artist and we have to see God as an artist, which is precisely what Wordsworth did in a lot of the verses that you quote in the book. And 
reading that part, I kind of wondered, I thought about uh, the screw tape letters and how, on how Wormwood talks about distraction as such a magnificent device for ensuring that people wouldn't see what they were actually looking at. And, and reading a lot of these, these, these much neglected poets and, you know, in 2022, um, I wondered if you had any opinion on uh, the ability of our generation to actually still engage with these things, to engage with the romantic poets. Um, I'll admit that although I'd read most of the, the shorter poems you've had, I don't think I've made it all the way through the, the rhyme of the ancient mariner. There's a lot of very long epic poems I haven't gotten all the way through. And I think that's because our attention span is also stunted and our ability to see what we're looking at, the dancing leaves, you cite Wordsworth as saying, etc., has been hugely stunted by the fact that our phone gives us everything that we want all of the time. What are your thoughts on that? There's just no question that we're at a moment when the culture is struggling to create. I think that we had a, a brief flaring of uh, genuine art on television uh, around the year 2000 when we had this kind of golden age of television but almost all of the stories of the golden age of television were about bad men uh, the sopranos breaking bad dexter uh, the shield all of these really fine and and remarkable television shows were all about bad men well why were they about bad men because we knew that masculinity was a good but we couldn't find a good way to use it because there was no truth for them to defend so what we did is we we had people who were admirable, uh, like this Tony Soprano, who's admirable in his strength and his genius, but he was a villain uh, because criminality was the only place where you were still free enough uh, to act because freedom is also a good. So we, we had to have this kind of criminal world in which people could act. So what the culture no longer has is a way forward to, to truth and beauty. I mean, to coin a phrase, it has no path to truth and beauty simply because we are burdened under the only philosophy in my mind that actually makes sense uh, as opposed to Christianity. Christianity makes perfect sense, but also this idea, this postmodern idea that there is no such thing as truth, that language is a lie, language is in itself an illusion, that there are only power structures and these power structures uh, create create the, the ideas of truth and have to be dismantled because they're oppressive. If that is not the philosophy of the father of lies, I don't know what is, you know, but it makes sense. It's, it's important that it makes sense. It always had made sense. It made sense when, I mean, one of the reasons I became a Christian was I, the only atheist I found who made complete sense was the Marquis de Sade, uh, who tells stories of brutalization and sexual abuse because there's no God, so why shouldn't he do whatever gives him pleasure? And I thought, well, you know, that, that argument is actually true, uh, but it's hell. It, it, you know, looking at what he's doing to people is just uh, hellish and disgusting, and I'm not going to follow that path. So we are at this moment when our intellectuals, uh, the people who train our artists, uh, our, our corporate leaders who have to fund the arts in the same way the church used to fund the arts, are all uh, mesmerized by this foul and false philosophy that they call theory or social justice. Uh, there's no way to make good art out of that. I mean, because the devil can only turn everything he touches into hell, you know, so that there's no way to create an art of truth and beauty out of a belief system that says there is no truth and there can be no beauty except as created by pow oppressive power. How are you going to make art out of that? The only story you can tell is waiting for Godot. And, that you know, basically they tell that story over and over again, where everything turns out to be fake or everything turns out to be nothing or nothing ever happens. But here we are. You just can't go on like that forever. And eventually uh, the culture will revive itself or die and a new culture will come forth that re-understands these things. But I'm very hopeful. I mean, I think that this thing has played itself out 
I think that now we see people, you know, looking forward to abusing children and teaching children that they should be abused. I, th- I think once we see what they're doing uh, and how wicked, you know, th- it's always the same thing with evil, right? It whispers in your ear that it's going to make you strong and it makes you weak and disgusting. And I think we've reached that point where the weakness and the disgusting has come to the surface and people are going to strike back. And I, I, I just think, you know, it's, it's obvious that it's going to happen. Uh, the question is, how big of a battle is it going to be to, to make it come forth in the book when you at the very beginning you actually say that like the romantics looked at godless nature and christian truth looked back and and they and the interesting thing about about a lot of the greatest artists is they were real pieces of garbage as human beings which you talk about at length when it comes to shelley and byron and there's a there's a there's a long list of 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 others i'm sure which you could have named and i could name as well i think of the number of of great poets and writers for example who forced uh their wives and mistresses into having abortions i was wondering when you say, you know, the lives and works of England's greatest poems pointing uh, the way, when you talk extensively about Byron and Shelley, for example, where they kind of extract their art, you know, from the flesh of people that they then discard, that they almost kind of consume their beauty in a very vampiric way and then use it to produce art that, that, that highlights this beauty. Would you say that as opposed to Coleridge and, and Wordsworth, people like Shelley and Byron would be more of a, a cautionary tale? I mean, this is very important to know that talent, you know, we see this in Hollywood all the time. People who are born staggeringly beautiful. Uh, They can transform themselves into anybody. They can read lines with incredible conviction. They can mesmerize you on a screen. And when you read about their personal lives, they are, as you say, uh, either monsters or just kind of trashy, you know, nobodies. Um, And that's that's just a fact, you know, talent, the, the spirit goes where it will and talent does the same. And so, you know, Shelley was a brilliant poem. Some of his short poems, uh, certainly The Ode to the West Wind and uh, Osmandias, just fantastically good poems. And so in, in those poems, his genius describes reality uh, recognizably and describes it with beauty. Uh, I think Byron, too, has moments of, of great, great genius. But since I'm dealing with the lives and the thoughts of these people, I focus more. I mean, Byron and Shelley are kind of in the background to Mary Shelley, who is really the artist I study in that section. And when I study Wordsworth and Keats and Coleridge, though Coleridge was a terribly broken man, these are much, much better people because they were trying to live out the truth that they were writing about. And that's really important. Whereas, uh, you know, Byron and Shelley, Byron was kind of a wastrel in many ways. And Shelley was a radical uh, who really lost his way. And both men died extremely young. So we don't know what would have become of them or what their what their maturity would have looked like. We just don't know. But the thing is, the talent is blind and the works are what are left behind. None of us is perfect and all of us are sinful and broken. Uh, but out of that sinful brokenness, we sometimes bring tremendous works of, of beauty and truth. And some of these people did, including Shelley, I would say, I would argue. And so you have to see them separately. The, their, the stories of their lives um, make good stories. You know, I always tell Christians that you have to remember that conservative Christian art is not conservative and Christian. It is simply a description of the world. It is we who trust that any true description of the world will reveal its creator. Uh, And I think that that is actually true. You know, people are always saying Shakespeare is not a Christian artist, but to me, he's the most Christian artist because his description of the world is most true. And you can see God moving in his works all the time, even though he uh, often doesn't name that that God, though sometimes he does. So, you know, I I, I feel that you just have to bring some compassion uh, to the story. You have to see these people, they're long dead, they have met their their maker, they 
they will their justice and mercy will be perfect uh we are only left with their uh, with their works and that's what we have to sort of focus on that brings me to mary shelley because although i i found the whole book very interesting i have to admit the part that grabbed me the most because frankenstein has long been been one of my favorite books i we you know work in, i've worked in the pro-life movement for a long time and obviously frankenstein has so much to say about our culture from reproductive technology surrogacy you name it it seems to be of all the classics one of the most prophetic of the classics but i have never heard or come across in any of the analysis your analysis that frankenstein is not about man playing god so much as it is about um this motherless monster um, who was who was sort of denied the feminine, and you have this this line in the book. I can't I can't uh, replicate it perfectly um, by memory, but where you talk about the the wifeless creator and the motherless monster pursuing each other through the barrenness of the Arctic. Can you kind of lay out this this theory uh, for our listeners? You know, Mary Shelley herself, who was living, remember she had run off with Percy Shelley. He had abandoned his wife, who later drowned herself uh, in the Serpentine because she was in such despair over it. She was dedicated to her father, who she thought was a god, and then she made a god out of Shelley. And after he died, spent her life uh, basically recreating this kind of, um, you know, libertine, atheist fool as a as a saintly creator, you know, and, and she's d- dedicated her life to him. She was a very feminine woman. Um, and And she was being, in some ways, abused by his his Shelley's philosophy of free love and his kind of disregard for her feminine attachment to her babies when they died and she was cast into grief. He didn't even recognize it. And she writes this book, Frankenstein, and she herself says, this is a book about a man who has tried to usurp the power of God. And I point out that really it's not. He makes life out of uh, given materials, which is what all men do and all women do when they create life. We create life out of the material we're given. What he does is he usurps the power of women. He creates a man without a mother. And that is, I think, so clearly what the story is about. I trace it back to its antecedents and some ghost stories about uh, women come back who have been wronged and come back as ghosts. And in, in, it's strewn throughout the book, images of the dead mother, images of the ruined mother, images of females being destroyed uh, by this monster. And in the monster's ultimate cry to his creator, that he may, in order that he can be fully human, he begs Dr. Frankenstein to make him a woman, make an Eve to go with his Adam. Uh, and, and when Frankenstein can't do it, he says, well, then I'm going to destroy everything you love. And so this is a book about what happens. Remember, this is the first modern science fiction novel. Mary is like 18 or something like this, and she invents the genre of science fiction. And, and this is the first one to say, you know, science in some ways is antithetical to the physical nature of motherhood, both in creating life out of matter and creating individuals through nurturing love. And that is not a materialist function. That is a spiritual function. It takes mothers out of the capitalist business it, you know, world. It takes mothers out of the uh, materialist world. Everything, everything that socialist materialists want to do is pointed toward eliminating motherhood. Uh, mothers are supposed to be equal to fathers and out in the workplace. Uh, they will never, never mind that you're not taking care of your children. We will have daycare for you. It all, it's all taken care of. And in daycare, we will teach uh, the boys that they might in fact be girls and the girls that they might in fact be boys. And don't you worry about it because you'll be off at work doing something really important instead of this minor motherhood business. Well, in fact, of course, the uh, the truth is exactly the reverse of this. Without, I mean, 
even God, when he wanted to become a person, the first thing he did was choose a mother, you know, that he could, he's God, he could have been become a person any way he wanted, but he chose a mother. Why? Because mothers don't just create people in the flesh, they also create humans in the spirit. And this is the essential role to preserve our humanity from the onslaught of machinery. And that is essentially what Mary, in a very prophetic way, was seeing coming in the future. And as I point out in the book, all of science fiction, not all of science fiction, but so much of major science fiction deals with this problem. When you have dystopian stories like Brave New World or The Giver, uh, the first thing that happens is the mother is eliminated. In Brave New World, machines create babies, little incubators create babies. In The Giver, uh, it's the task is relegated to the least of women, the kind of working uh, class women who have babies and then become nobody. Uh, motherhood is the obstacle to the onslaught of science and technological dominance. The, the best example, my favorite example, because it's one of my favorite action movies, is Terminator, uh, where the machines have taken over the world. A small group of rebels is fighting them. So what do they do? They don't just kill, they don't kill the rebel leader. They go back in time to kill the leader's mother. And in the first book movie, which I believe is by far the best of all of them, the, she's not a superhero. She's not a muscle-bound feminist half man. She's just a girl. The the mother is just a, a girl who wants to do her hair and meet her friends and go out to drink and meet men. That's, that's all she's doing. But that femininity is power enough to bring down the reign of the machines, and they have to put it, take it out. And it's just uh, it's just a wonderful symbol of what materialist science does and why women see we, we frequently on the uh, conservatives are frequently talking about the attack on masculinity but the attack on masculinity is simply a way of lever, leveling the playing field so that women can take the roles of men because if women take the roles of women which is creating homes out of houses, creating acts of love out of acts of drudgery, creating humans out of uh, flesh and, and blood. If we let mothers do what they're going to do, then the march of the machines, the march of materialist uh, utopia is going to be turned on its head, is going to be broken. And so women are the essential target. And that's why you see men pretending to be women, you know, going off into sports but you don't see any women pretending. Nobody's protesting about, about you know, rate, you know, about some woman who wants to pretend to be a man. It's like, go ahead. We know it's the women who are the essential ones. We know it's it's them. We know it's the women who have to be destroyed in their femininity, have to be separated from their femininity, from their maternal instincts, from uh, their love of home and family and uh, and infants. Uh, they have to be separated from that in order for the materialist world to come into full being. And for those of us who don't think the materialist world should come into full being, who think we shouldn't follow the science, but the science should follow us, women are essential and we have to defend and elevate uh, the role they play. When you're reading this book, it's impossible not to want a longer uh, theory of art from Clavin. I, I really do hope you read another, you write another book that kind of gives your unifying theory of art beyond what's in this book, which is already quite a lot. And I was looking at... Um, at a lot of the things uh, that you're saying, not only in the book, but in your commentary on, on, on art and culture, especially on, on, on art being tr uh, true, how would you then differentiate art from entertainment? 
Um, because if you look, for example, like Daily Wire has an entertainment section, but you know, the difference between a, a revenge flick, you know, a, a school shooting, shoot him up revenge flick and say a hidden life, I think is, is, is really obvious. So how would you differentiate the two? Would you say that they're, that art is, is distinct from entertainment or would you say that they're both? I think that entertainment is um, minor art, basically. You know, I think that so many times we have found works of entertainment that when we study them actually open up to art. When you read Shakespeare, who is my model uh, for how to construct a story, uh, I know that sounds silly, but he really is because his, his stories are filled with sword fights and love affairs and, you know, uh, all kinds of intrigue and spies and executions and all that. But they are the deepest works of art we have in English and probably in any language. And and that's because he is entered, you know, he's holding the mirror up to nature, as he himself said, and is showing us the world in these wonderful, entertaining stories. And so, you know, what what happens with enter, what makes entertainment entertainment and not art is that it doesn't tell us very much about ourselves. Uh, it doesn't reflect very deeply. It's a surface mirror instead of a deep pool with a reflection on top that keeps going down. Um, you know, I, I wrote a pamphlet called The Crisis of the Arts, which does explain uh, at, at least some of my theory of art. You can get it for like a buck, I think, on Amazon if you can't find it free online. Um, but it does kind of explain wh- how I think art works and what I think it does and, and how it essentially uh, transmits the inner experience of being human, which is what all this is is about uh, in the same way that a math textbook transmits math so that we don't have to continually relearn what we know. I mean, the problem we have right now is we have a a population that has been purposely diseducated so that it no longer has the simple human knowledge uh, to build on the knowledge of the past. And they are promised as, as ever, they are promised that they're going to build a a brave new world and a wonderful new world if they can just pull down all the statues and get rid of all the traditions and forget all the instincts that they have. Uh, But of course, that that way lies chaos and hell. And only by remembering can we build on it. And that's what art does. It records in various times and various places what is eternal and what is momentary in the inner experience of being human. If you look at the crisis of the arts, then you look, you look forward. How would you envision Christians creating Christian art? For one thing, they have to get rid of what Schopenhauer called the banal optimism of Christianity. God's not dead. Oh, uh, well, uh, you know, I, I hate to attack those things, but I know people love them and I, they, they serve their purpose and they have talented people involved in them. But, you know, there's a moment in, in God is not dead where a guy gets hit by a, a car and is killed. And the reaction is, well, luckily he found Jesus, so he's going to heaven. So what can we learn from this? It's not even a human tragedy. I, like, can we not even pause and cry? Because shouldn't we you know, call his wife or something you know, before we celebrate the fact that he's gone to heaven? No, you know, Christianity does not, as the cross shows us, it does not erase the tragedy of living. It does not erase the injustice of being human, the sin and the ugliness and the pain that we all suffer. Uh, the thing that love is a compensation. Uh, is a compensation for uh, cannot be erased and still and and still leave the love behind. Um, this is a difficult life, a tragic life, a painful life, and the fact that we can anesthetize ourselves to it doesn't make it any less that way. So you can't create art out of a, a big yellow smiley face. It's just not going to happen. Um, I think we have to begin with the fact that not only is life sexy, uh, dirty, tragic, bloody. 
But those are the things that make it entertaining uh, and that entertainment is not uh, a sort of sedate smile that we sit there and say, oh, isn't it wonderful that God has got us and all is, is well? Uh, no, you know, I mean, I think it is the absolute television show, the great epic movie uh, of being alive in a world of bloodshed, sex and violence. You know, that's that's is what art is. So we shouldn't be afraid of that, because if we can see God in the world as it is, then we can see God in art that shows the world as it is. And And when you go back and look at even the great paintings, um, that that are so inspiring. I mean, when I walk into a mu- museum today and look at the uh, Renaissance wing, it breaks my heart at the humanism and the humanity and the sense of God that is in, that infused in those paintings, you know. Uh, but at the same time, they're full of uh, sexuality, sensuality, uh, bloodshed. Uh, some of the pictures of the saints are absolutely, you know, gory, hor- horrific. We can't walk away from reality. And that's the first thing. But as we say that, we have to remember that the experience, that the human experience of life is the part of creation that we are dealing with. The human experience of life is not to be dismissed. It's not to be disproved. It is to be delved for truth and for beauty. And when we do that, we can create art. I mean, anybody who acts in the faith that this world, this horrible, ugly, tragic, beautiful, and delightful world is God's world. If you have the talent and can see that clearly, then you can create art. It's not going to go away. Art's not going to go away. It may be, it may leave us for a time, but the spirit will return. It always does. Um, and, and I think by, by starting to leave this theory that has uh, infested our cultural world behind, I think that's the beginning. One of the things I'll I'll tell you, I have about 100 pages. I don't know if I still have them, but I put aside in my computer that were in the truth and beauty, but I cut them out because they were arguments with theory. And I finally said to myself, you know, theory is so pernicious. It's so bad that I do not even want to give it the respect of disproving it. I'm simply going to put forward what I think is true and what I think is beautiful. And I think that improved the book immensely. And I think all of us should do the same. Thank you so much for taking the time to discuss this book. It's been a pleasure. It's been a really interesting conversation. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Andrew Claven on his new book, The Truth and Beauty. If you want to check out uh, past shows or subscribe to this podcast to get these things delivered to you week over week, head over to lightsidenews.com, click on the podcast tab. You can find us wherever you get your content. Thanks so much for joining us this week, and we hope you'll join us again next week.